Harper Audio presents How to Read Literature Like a Professor, a lively and entertaining guide to reading between the lines. By Thomas C. Foster. Read by David DeVries. Introduction. How'd he do that? Mr. Lindner? That milk toast? Right. Mr. Lindner, the milk toast. So, what did you think the devil would look like? If he were red with a tail, horns, and cloven hooves, any fool could say no. The class and I are discussing Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, 1959, one of the great plays of the American theater. The incredulous questions have come, as they often do, in response to my innocent suggestion that Mr. Lindner is the devil. The Youngers, an African-American family in Chicago, have made a down payment on a house in an all-white neighborhood. Mr. Lindner, a meekly apologetic little man, has been dispatched from the neighborhood association, check in hand, to buy out the family's claim on the house. At first, Walter Lee Younger, the protagonist, confidently turns down the offer, believing that the family's money, in the form of a life insurance payment after his father's recent death, is secure. Shortly afterward, however, he discovers that two-thirds of that money has been stolen. All of a sudden, the previously insulting offer comes to look like his financial salvation. Bargains with the devil go back a long way in Western culture. In all the versions of the Faust legend, which is the dominant form of this type of story, the hero is offered something he desperately wants, power or knowledge or a fastball that will beat the Yankees, and all he has to give up is his soul. This pattern holds from the Elizabethan Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus through the 19th century Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Faust to the 20th century's Stephen Vincent Benet's The Devil and Daniel Webster and Damn Yankees. In Hansbury's version, when Mr. Lindner makes his offer, he doesn't demand Walter Lee's soul. In fact, he doesn't even know that he's demanding it. He is, though. Walter Lee can be rescued from the monetary crisis he has brought upon the family. All he has to do is admit that he's not the equal of the white residents who don't want him moving in, that his pride and self-respect, his identity, can be bought. If that's not selling your soul, then what is it? The chief difference between Hansberry's version of the Faustian bargain and others is that Walter Lee ultimately resists the satanic temptation. Previous versions have been either tragic or comic, depending on whether the devil successfully collects the soul at the end of the work. Here, the protagonist psychologically makes the deal, but then looks at himself and at the true cost, and recovers in time to reject the devil's, Mr. Lindner's, offer. The resulting play, for all its tears and anguish, is structurally comic. The tragic downfall, threatened but avoided, and Walter Lee grows to heroic stature in wrestling with his own demons as well as the external one, Lindner, and coming through without falling. A moment occurs in this exchange between professor and student when each of us adopts a look. My look says, What, you don't get it? Theirs says, We don't get it. And we think you're making it up. We're having a communication problem. Basically, we've all read the same story, but we haven't used the same analytical apparatus. If you've ever spent time in a literature classroom as a student or a professor, you know this moment. It may seem at times as if the professor is either inventing interpretations out of thin air or else performing parlor tricks, a sort of analytical sleight of hand. Actually, neither of these is the case. Rather, the professor, as the slightly more experienced reader, has acquired over the years the use of a certain language of reading, something to which the students are only beginning to be introduced. What I'm talking about is a grammar of literature, a set of conventions and patterns, codes and rules that we learn to employ in dealing with a piece of writing. Every language has a grammar, a set of rules that govern usage and meaning, and literary language is no different. It's all more or less arbitrary, of course, just like language itself. Take the word arbitrary as an example. It doesn't mean anything inherently, 
Rather, at some point in our past, we agreed that it would mean what it does, and it does so only in English, though sounds would be so much gibberish in Japanese or Finnish. So too with art. We decided to agree that perspective, the set of tricks artists use to provide the illusion of depth, was a good thing and vital to painting. This occurred during the Renaissance in Europe, but when Western and Oriental art encountered each other in the 1700s, Japanese artists and their audiences were serenely untroubled by the lack of perspective in their painting. No one felt it particularly essential to the experience of pictorial art. Literature has its grammar, too. You knew that, of course. Even if you didn't know that, you knew from the structure of the preceding paragraph that it was coming. How? The grammar of the essay. You can read, and part of reading is knowing the conventions, recognizing them, and anticipating the results. When someone introduces a topic, the grammar of literature, then digresses to show other topics, language, art, music, dog training, it doesn't matter what examples, as soon as you see a couple of them, you recognize the pattern, you know he's coming back with an application of those examples to the main topic. Voila! And he did. So, now we're all happy because the convention has been used, observed, noted, anticipated, and fulfilled. What more can you want from a paragraph? Well, as I was saying before I so rudely digressed, so too in literature. Stories and novels have a very large set of conventions, types of characters, plot rhythms, chapter structures, point of view limitations. Poems have a great many of their own involving form, structure, rhythm, rhyme, plays too. And then there are conventions that cross genre lines. Spring is largely universal. So is snow. So is darkness. And sleep. When spring is mentioned in a story, a poem, or a play, a veritable constellation of associations rises in our imaginative sky. Youth, promise, new life, young lambs, children skipping, on and on. And if we associate even further, that constellation may lead us to more abstract concepts such as rebirth, fertility, renewal. Okay, let's say you're right and there is a set of conventions, a key to reading literature. How do I get so I can recognize these? Same way you get to Carnegie Hall. Practice. When lay readers encounter a fictive text, they focus, as they should, on the story and the characters. Who are these people? What are they doing? And what wonderful or terrible things are happening to them? Such readers respond, first of all, and sometimes only, to their reading on an emotional level. The work affects them, producing joy or revulsion, laughter or tears, anxiety or elation. In other words, they are emotionally and instinctively involved in the work. This is the response level that virtually every writer who has ever set pen to paper or fingertip to keyboard has hoped for when sending the novel, along with a prayer, to the publisher. When an English professor reads, on the other hand, he will accept the effective response level of the story, we don't mind a good cry when little Nell dies, but a lot of his attention will be engaged by other elements of the novel. Where did that effect come from? Whom does this character resemble? Where have I seen this situation before? Didn't Dante, or Chaucer, or Merle Haggard say that? If you learn to ask these questions, to see literary texts through these glasses, you will read and understand literature in a new light, and it'll become more rewarding and fun. Memory Symbol Pattern These are the three items that more than any other separate the professorial reader from the rest of the crowd. English professors as a class are cursed with memory. Whenever I read a new work, I spin the mental Rolodex looking for correspondences and corollaries. Where have I seen his face? Don't I know that theme? I can't not do it, although there are plenty of times when that ability is not something I want to exercise. Thirty minutes into Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider, 1985, for instance, I thought, okay, this is Shane, 1953. 
And from there, I didn't watch another frame of the movie without seeing Alan Ladd's face. This does not necessarily improve the experience of popular entertainment. Professors also read and think symbolically. Everything is a symbol of something, it seems, until proven otherwise. We ask, is this a metaphor? Is that an analogy? What does the thing over there signify? The kind of mind that works its way through undergraduate and then graduate classes in literature and criticism has a predisposition to see things as existing in themselves while simultaneously also representing something else. Grendel, the monster in the medieval epic Beowulf, 8th century A.D., is an actual monster, but he can also symbolize a. the hostility of the universe to human existence, a hostility that medieval Anglo-Saxons would have felt acutely, and b. a darkness in human nature that only some higher aspect of ourselves, as symbolized by the title hero, can conquer. This predisposition to understand the world in symbolic terms is reinforced, of course, by years of training that encourages and rewards the symbolic imagination. A related phenomenon in professorial reading is pattern recognition. Most professional students of literature learn to take in the foreground detail while seeing the patterns that the detail reveals. Like the symbolic imagination, this is a function of being able to distance oneself from the story, to look beyond the purely effective level of plot, drama, characters. Experience has proven to them that life and books fall into similar patterns. Nor is this skill exclusive to English professors. Good mechanics, the kind who used to fix cars before computerized diagnostics, use pattern recognition to diagnose engine troubles. If this and this are happening, then check that. Literature is full of patterns, and your reading experience will be much more rewarding when you can step back from the work even while you're reading it and look for those patterns. When small children, very small children, begin to tell you a story, they put in every detail and every word they recall with no sense that some features are more important than others. As they grow, they begin to display a greater sense of the plots of their stories, what elements actually add to the significance and which do not. So, too, with readers. Beginning students are often swamped with the mass of detail. The chief experience of reading Dr. Zhivago, 1957, may be that they can't keep all the names straight. Wily veterans, on the other hand, will absorb those details, or possibly overlook them, to find the patterns, the routines, the archetypes at work in the background. Let's look at an example of how the symbolic mind, the pattern observer, the powerful memory, combine to offer a reading of a non-literary situation. Let's say that a male subject you are studying exhibits behavior and makes statements that show him to be hostile toward his father, but much warmer and more loving toward, even dependent on, his mother. Okay, that's just one guy, so no big deal. But you see it again in another person. And again, and again. You might start to think this is a pattern of behavior, in which case you would say to yourself, now where have I seen this before? Your memory may dredge up something from experience, not your clinical work, but a play you read long ago in your youth about a man who murders his father and marries his mother. Even though the current examples have nothing to do with drama, your symbolic imagination will allow you to connect the earlier instance of this pattern with the real-life examples in front of you at the moment. And your talent for nifty naming will come up with something to call this pattern, the Oedipal Complex. As I said, not only English professors use these abilities. Sigmund Freud reads his patients the way a literary scholar reads texts, bringing the same sort of imaginative interpretation to understanding his cases that we try to bring to interpreting novels and poems and plays. His identification of the Oedipal complex is one of the great moments in the history of human thought, with as much literary as psychoanalytical significance. What I hope to do in the coming pages is what I do in class. Give readers a view of what goes on when professional students of literature do their thing. A broad introduction to the codes and patterns that inform our readings. 
I want my students not only to agree with me that, indeed, Mr. Lindner is an instance of the demonic tempter offering Walter Lee Younger a Faustian bargain. I want them to be able to reach that conclusion without me. I know they can, with practice, patience, and a bit of instruction. And so can you. Chapter 1 Every Trip is a Quest, Except When It's Not Okay, so here's the deal. Let's say, purely hypothetically, you're reading a book about an average 16-year-old kid in the summer of 1968. The kid, let's call him Kip, who hopes his acne clears up before he gets drafted, is on his way to the A&P. His bike is a one-speed with a coaster brake, and therefore deeply humiliating, and riding it to run an errand for his mother makes it even worse. Along the way, he has a couple of disturbing experiences, including a minorly unpleasant encounter with a German shepherd, topped off in the supermarket parking lot, where he sees the girl of his dreams, Karen, laughing and horsing around in Tony Vauxhall's brand-new Barracuda. Now, Kip hates Tony already because he has a name like Vauxhall, and not like Smith, which Kip thinks is pretty lame as a name to follow Kip and because the Cuda is bright green and goes approximately the speed of light, and also because Tony has never had to work a day in his life. So Karen, who is laughing and having a great time, turns and sees Kip, who has recently asked her out, and she keeps laughing. She could stop laughing, and it wouldn't matter to us, since we're considering this structurally. In the story we're inventing here, though, she keeps laughing. Kip goes on into the store to buy the loaf of Wonder Bread that his mother told him to pick up, and as he reaches for the bread, he decides right then and there to lie about his age to the Marine recruiter even though it means going to Vietnam, because nothing will ever happen for him in this one-horse burg where the only thing that matters is how much money your old man has. Either that, or Kip has a vision of St. Abelard. Any saint will do, but our imaginary author picked a comparatively obscure one whose face appears on one of the red, yellow, or blue balloons. For our purposes, the nature of the decision doesn't matter any more than whether Karen keeps laughing or which color balloon manifests the saint. What just happened here? If you were an English professor, and not even a particularly weird English professor, you'd know that you just watched a knight have a not very suitable encounter with his nemesis. In other words, a quest just happened. But it just looked like a trip to the store for some white bread. True, but consider the quest. Of what does it consist? A knight, a dangerous road, a holy grail, whatever one of those may be, at least one dragon, one evil knight, one princess. Sound about right? That's a list I can live with. A knight, named Kip, a dangerous road, nasty German shepherds, a holy grail, one form of which is a loaf of wonder bread, at least one dragon, trust me, a 68 Cuda could definitely breathe fire, one evil knight, Tony, one princess, who can either keep laughing or stop. Seems like a bit of a stretch. On the surface, sure, but let's think structurally. The quest consists of five things. A, a quester. B, a place to go. C. A stated reason to go there. D. Challenges and trials en route. And E. A real reason to go there. Item A is easy. A quester is just a person who goes on a quest, whether or not he knows it's a quest. In fact, usually he doesn't know. Items B and C should be considered together. Someone tells our protagonist, our hero, who need not look very heroic, to go somewhere and do something. Go in search of the Holy Grail. Go to the store for bread. Go to Vegas and whack a guy. Tasks of varying nobility, to be sure, but structurally all the same. Go there, do that. Note that I said the stated reason for the quest. That's because of item E. The real reason for a quest never involves the stated reason. In fact, more often than not, the quester fails at the stated task. So why do they go? And why do we care? They go because of the stated task, mistakenly believing that it is their real mission. We know, however, that their quest is educational. 
they don't know enough about the only subject that really matters, themselves. The real reason for a quest is always self-knowledge. That's why questers are so often young, inexperienced, immature, sheltered. Forty-five-year-old men either have self-knowledge or they're never going to get it, while your average 16- to 17-year-old kid is likely to have a long way to go in the self-knowledge department. Let's look at a real example. When I teach the late 20th century novel, I always begin with the greatest quest novel of the last century, Thomas Pynchon's Crying of Lot 49. 1965. Beginning readers can find the novel mystifying, irritating, and highly peculiar. True enough, there is a good bit of cartoonish strangeness in the novel which can mask the basic quest structure. On the other hand, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, late 14th century, and Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, 1596, two of the great quest narratives from early English literature, also have what modern readers must consider cartoonish elements. It's really only a matter of whether we're talking Classics Illustrated or Zap Comics. So, here's the setup in The Crying of Lot 49. 1. Our quester, a young woman, not very happy in her marriage or her life, not too old to learn, not too assertive where men are concerned. 2. A place to go. In order to carry out her duties, she must drive to Southern California from her home near San Francisco. Eventually, she will travel back and forth between the two and between her past, a husband with a disintegrating personality and a fondness for LSD, an insane ex-Nazi psychotherapist, and her future, highly unclear. 3. A stated reason to go there. She has been made executor of the will of her former lover, a fabulously wealthy and eccentric businessman and stamp collector. 4. Challenges and Trials our heroine meets lots of really strange, scary, and occasionally truly dangerous people. She goes on a night-long excursion through the world of the outcasts and the dispossessed of San Francisco, enters her therapist's office to talk him out of his psychotic shooting rampage, the dangerous enclosure known in the study of traditional quest romances as Chapel Perilous, involves herself in what may be a centuries-old postal conspiracy. Five. The real reason to go. Did I mention that her name is Oedipa? Oedipa Moss, actually. She's named for the great tragic character from Sophocles' drama Oedipus the King, circa 425 B.C., whose real calamity is that he doesn't know himself. In Pynchon's novel, the heroine's resources, really her crutches, and they all happen to be male, are stripped away one by one shown to be false or unreliable until she reaches the point where she either must break down, reduce to a little fetal ball, or stand straight and rely on herself. And to do that, she first must find the self on whom she can rely, which she does after considerable struggle, gives up on men, Tupperware parties, easy answers plunges ahead into the great mystery of the ending, acquires, dare we say, self-knowledge? Of course we dare. Still, you don't believe me. Then why does the stated goal fade away? We hear less and less about the will and the estate as the story goes on, and even the surrogate goal, the mystery of the postal conspiracy, remains unresolved. At the end of the novel, she's about to witness an auction of some rare forged stamps, and the answer to the mystery may appear during the auction. We doubt it, though, given what's gone before. Mostly, we don't even care. Now we know, as she does, that she can carry on, that discovering that men can't be counted on doesn't mean the world ends, that she's a whole person. So, there in 50 words or more is why professors of literature typically think The Crying of Lot 49 is a terrific little book. It does look a bit weird at first glance, experimental and super hip, but once you get the hang of it, you see that it follows the conventions of a quest tale. So does Huck Finn, The Lord of the Rings, North by Northwest, Star Wars, and most other stories of someone going somewhere and doing something, especially if the going and the doing wasn't his idea in the first place. A word of warning. 
If I sometimes speak here and in the chapters to come as if a certain statement is always true, a certain condition always obtains, I apologize. Always and never are not words that have much meaning in literary study. For one thing, as soon as something seems to always be true, some wise guy will come along and write something to prove that it's not. If literature seems to be too comfortably patriarchal, a novelist like the late Angela Carter or a poet like the contemporary Evan Boland will come along and upend things just to remind readers and writers of the falseness of our established assumptions. If readers start to pigeonhole African-American writing, as was beginning to happen in the 1960s and 1970s, a trickster like Ishmael Reed will come along who refuses to fit in any pigeonhole we could create. Let's consider journeys. Sometimes the quest fails or is not taken up by the protagonist. Moreover, is every trip really a quest? It depends. Some days I just drive to work. No adventures, no growth. I'm sure that the same is true in writing. Sometimes plot requires that a writer get a character from home to work and back again. That said, when a character hits the road, we should start to pay attention just to see if, you know, something's going on there. Once you figure out quests, the rest is easy. Chapter 2 Nice to eat with you. Acts of Communion Perhaps you've heard the anecdote about Sigmund Freud. One day one of his students or assistants or some such hanger-on was teasing him about his fondness for cigars, referring to their obvious phallic nature. The great man responded simply that, Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I don't really care if the story is true or not. Actually, I think I prefer that it be apocryphal, since made-up anecdotes have their own kind of truth. Still, it is equally true that just as cigars may be just cigars, so sometimes they are not. Same with meals in life and, of course, in literature. Sometimes a meal is just a meal, and eating with others is simply eating with others. More often than not, though, it's not. Once or twice a semester at least, I will stop discussion of the story or play under consideration to intone, and I invariably intone in bold, Whenever people eat or drink together, it's communion. For some reasons, this is often met with a slightly scandalized look, communion having for many readers one and only one meaning. While that meaning is very important, it is not the only one. Nor, for that matter, does Christianity have a lock on the practice. Nearly every religion has some liturgical or social ritual involving the coming together of the faithful to share sustenance. So I have to explain that just as intercourse has meanings other than sexual, or at least did at one time, so not all communions are holy. In fact, literary versions of communion can interpret the word in quite a variety of ways. Here's the thing to remember about communions of all kinds. In the real world, breaking bread together is an act of sharing and peace, since if you're breaking bread, you're not breaking heads. One generally invites one's friends to dinner, unless one is trying to get on the good side of enemies or employers. We're quite particular about those with whom we break bread. We may not, for instance, accept a dinner invitation from someone we don't care for. The act of taking food into our bodies is so personal that we really only want to do it with people we're very comfortable with. As with any convention, this one can be violated. A tribal leader, or mafia don, say, may invite his enemies to lunch and then have them killed. In most areas, however, such behavior is considered very bad form. Generally, eating with another is a way of saying, I'm with you, I like you, we form a community together. And that is a form of communion. So too in literature. And in literature, there is another reason. Writing a meal scene is so difficult and so inherently uninteresting that there really needs to be some compelling reason to include one in the story. And that reason has to do with how characters are getting along or not getting along. Come on, food is food. What can you say about fried chicken that you haven't already heard, said, seen, thought? And eating is eating, with some slight variations of table manners. 
To put characters then in this mundane, overused, fairly boring situation, something more has to be happening than simply beef, forks, and goblets. So what kind of communion, and what kind of result can it achieve? Any kind you can think of. Let's consider an example that will never be confused with religious communion, the eating scene in Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, 1749, which, as one of my students once remarked, sure doesn't look like church. Specifically, Tom and his lady friend, Mrs. Waters, dine at an inn, chomping, gnawing, sucking on bones, licking fingers, a more leering, slurping, groaning, and, in short, sexual meal has never been consumed. While it doesn't feel particularly important thematically, and moreover, it's as far from traditional notions of communion as we can get, it nevertheless constitutes a shared experience. What else is the eating about in that scene except consuming the other's body? Think of it as a consuming desire, or two of them. And in the case of the movie version of Tom Jones starring Albert Finney, 1963, there's another reason. Tony Richardson, the director, couldn't openly show sex as, well, sex. There were still taboos in film in the early 60s. So what he does is show something else as sex. And it's probably dirtier than all but two or three sex scenes ever filmed. When those two finish swilling ale and slurping on drumsticks and sucking fingers and generally wallowing and moaning, the audience wants to lie back and smoke. But what is this expression of desire except a kind of communion? Very private, admittedly, and decidedly not holy. I want to be with you. You want to be with me. Let us share the experience. And that's the point. Communion doesn't need to be holy. Or even decent. How about a slightly more sedate example? The late Raymond Carver wrote a story, Cathedral, 1981, about a guy with real hang-ups. Included among the many things the narrator is bigoted against are people with disabilities, minorities, those different from himself, and all parts of his wife's past in which he does not share. Now, the only reason to give a character a serious hang-up is to give him the chance to get over it. He may fail, but he gets the chance. It's the code of the West. When our unnamed narrator reveals to us from the first moment that a blind man, a friend of his wife's, is coming to visit, we're not surprised that he doesn't like the prospect at all. We know immediately that our man has to overcome disliking everyone who is different. And by the end, he does, when he and the blind man sit together to draw a cathedral so the blind man can get a sense of what one looks like. To do that, they have to touch, hold hands even, and there's no way the narrator would have been able to do that at the start of the story. Carver's problem, then, is how to get from the nasty, prejudiced, narrow-minded person of the opening page to the point where he can actually have a blind man's hand on his own at the ending. The answer is food. Every coach I ever had would say when we faced a superior opposing team that they put on their pants one leg at a time just like everybody else. What those coaches could have said in all accuracy is that those supermen shovel in the pasta just like the rest of us. Or, in Carver's story, meatloaf. When the narrator watches the blind man eating, competent, busy, hungry, and, well, normal, he begins to gain a new respect for him. The three of them, husband, wife, and visitor, ravenously consume the meatloaf, potatoes, and vegetables, and in the course of that experience, our narrator finds his antipathy toward the blind man beginning to break down. He discovers he has something in common with this stranger eating as a fundamental element of life, that there is a bond between them. What about the dope they smoke afterward? Passing a joint doesn't quite resemble the wafer in the chalice, does it? But thinking symbolically, where's the difference, really? Please note, I am not suggesting that illicit drugs are required to break down social barriers. On the other hand, here is a substance they take into their bodies in a shared, almost ritualistic experience. Once again, the act says... I'm with you. I share this moment with you. I feel a bond of community with you. It may be a moment of even greater trust. In any case, the alcohol at supper and the marijuana after combine to relax the narrator so he can receive the full force of his insight, so he can share in the drawing of a cathedral, 
which, incidentally, is a place of communion. What about when they don't? What if dinner turns ugly or doesn't happen at all? A different outcome, but the same logic, I think. If a well-run meal or snack portends good things for community and understanding, then the failed meal stands as a bad sign. It happens all the time on television shows. Two people are at dinner and a third comes up, quite unwished for, and one or more of the first two refuse to eat. They place their napkins on their plates or say something about losing their appetite or simply get up and walk away. Immediately we know what they think about the interloper. Think of all those movies where a soldier shares his sea rations with a comrade or a boy his sandwich with a stray dog. From the overwhelming message of loyalty, kinship, and generosity, you get a sense of how strong a value we place on the comradeship of the table. What if we see two people having dinner then, but one of them is plotting or bringing about the demise of the other? In that case, our revulsion at the act of murder is reinforced by our sense that a very important propriety, namely that one should not do evil to one's dinner companions, is being violated. Or consider Ann Tyler's Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant, 1982. The mother tries and tries to have a family dinner, and every time she fails. Someone can't make it, someone gets called away, some minor disaster befalls the table. Not until her death can her children assemble around a table at the restaurant and achieve dinner. At that point, of course, the body and blood they symbolically share are hers. Her life and her death become part of their common experience. For the full effect of dining together, consider James Joyce's story, The Dead, 1914. This wonderful story is centered around a dinner party on the Feast of the Epiphany, the twelfth day of Christmas. All kinds of disparate drives and desires enact themselves during the dancing and dinner, and hostilities and alliances are revealed. The main character, Gabriel Conroy, must learn that he is not superior to everyone else. During the course of the evening, he receives a series of small shocks to his ego that collectively demonstrate that he is very much part of the more general social fabric. The table and dishes of food themselves are lavishly described as Joyce lures us into the atmosphere. A fat brown goose lay at one end of the table, and at the other end, on a bed of creased paper strewn with sprigs of parsley, lay a great ham, stripped of its outer skin and peppered over with crust crumbs a neat paper frill round its shin, and beside this was a round of spiced beef. Between these rival ends ran parallel lines of side dishes, two little minsters of jelly, red and yellow, a shallow dish full of blocks of blancmange and red jam, a large green leaf-shaped dish with a stalk-shaped handle on which lay bunches of purple raisins and peeled almonds, a companion dish on which lay a solid rectangle of Smyrna figs, a dish of custard topped with grated nutmeg, a small bowl full of chocolates and sweets wrapped in gold and silver papers, and a glass vase in which stood some tall celery stalks. In the center of the table there stood, as sentries to a fruit stand which upheld a pyramid of oranges and American apples, two squat, old-fashioned decanters of cut glass, one containing port and the other dark sherry. On the closed square piano, a pudding in a huge yellow dish lay in waiting, and behind it were three squads of bottles of stout and ale and minerals drawn up according to the colors of their uniforms. The first two, black, with brown and red labels. The third and smallest squad, white, with transverse green sashes. No writer ever took such care about food and drink, so marshaled his forces to create a military effect of armies drawn up as if for battle. Ranks, files, rival ends, sentries, squads, sashes. Such a paragraph would not be created without having some purpose, some ulterior motive. Now, Joyce being Joyce, he has about five different purposes, one not being enough for genius. His main goal, though, is to draw us into that moment, to pull our chairs up to that table so that we are utterly convinced of the reality of the meal. At the same time, he wants to convey the sense of tension and conflict that has been running through the evening. There are a host of us-against-them-and-you-against-me moments earlier and even during the meal, 
and this tension will stand at odds with a sharing of this sumptuous and, given the holiday, unifying meal. He does this for a very simple, very profound reason. We need to be part of that communion. It would be easy for us simply to laugh at Freddie Malins, the resident drunkard, and his dotty mother to shrug off the table talk about operas and singers we've never heard of, merely to snicker at the flirtations among the younger people to discount the tension Gabriel feels over the speech of gratitude he's obliged to make at meal's end. But we can't maintain our distance, because the elaborate setting of this scene makes us feel as if we're seated at that table. So we notice, a little before Gabriel does, since he's lost in his own reality, that we're all in this together, that in fact, we share something. The thing we share is our death. Everyone in that room, from old and frail Aunt Julia to the youngest music student, will die. Not tonight, but someday. Once you recognize that fact, and we've been given a head start by the title, whereas Gabriel doesn't know his evening has a title, it's smooth sledding. Next to our mortality, which comes to great and small equally, all the differences in our lives are mere surface details. When the snow comes at the end of the story in a beautiful and moving passage, it covers equally all the living and the dead. Of course it does, we think. The snow is just like death. We're already prepared, having shared in the communion meal Joyce has laid out for us, a communion not of death, but of what comes before. Of life. Chapter 3 Nice to eat you. Acts of vampires. What a difference a preposition makes. If you take the with out of nice to eat with you, it begins to mean something quite different, less wholesome, more creepy. It just goes to show that not all eating that happens in literature is friendly. Not only that, it doesn't even always look like eating. Beyond here, there be monsters. Vampires in literature, you say. Big deal. I've read Dracula and Anne Rice. Good for you. Everyone deserves a good scare. But actual vampires are only the beginning. Not only that, they're not even necessarily the most alarming type. After all, you can at least recognize them. Let's start with Dracula himself, and we'll eventually see why this is true. You know how in all those Dracula movies or almost all, the Count always has this weird attractiveness to him. Sometimes he's downright sexy. Always, he's alluring, dangerous, mysterious, and he tends to focus on beautiful, unmarried, which in the social vision of 19th century England means virginal women. And when he gets them, he grows younger, more alive, if we can say this of the undead, more virile even. Meanwhile, his victims become like him and begin to seek out their own victims. Van Helsing, the Count's ultimate nemesis, and his lot, then, are really protecting young people, and especially young women, from this menace when they hunt him down. Most of this in one form or another can be found in Bram Stoker's novel, 1897, although it gets more hysterical in the movie versions. Now let's think about this for a moment. A nasty old man, attractive but evil, violates young women, leaves his mark on them, steals their innocence, and coincidentally their usefulness, if you think marriageability, you'll be about right, to young men, and leaves them helpless followers in his sin. I think we'd be reasonable to conclude that the whole Count Dracula saga has an agenda to it beyond merely scaring us out of our wits, although scaring readers out of their wits is a noble enterprise and one that Stoker's novel accomplishes very nicely. In fact, we might conclude it has something to do with sex. Well, of course it has to do with sex. Evil has had to do with sex since the serpent seduced Eve. What was the upshot there? Body shame and unwholesome lust, seduction, temptation, danger, among other ills. So vampirism isn't about vampires? Oh, it is, it is. But it's also about things other than literal vampirism. Selfishness, exploitation, a refusal to respect the autonomy of other people just for starters. We'll return to this list a bit later on. This principle also applies to other scary favorites, such as ghosts and doppelgangers, ghost doubles or evil twins. 
We can take it almost as an act of faith that ghosts are about something besides themselves. That may not be true in naive ghost stories, but most literary ghosts, the kind that occur in stories of lasting interest, have to do with things beyond themselves. But think of the ghost of Hamlet's father when he takes to appearing on the castle ramparts at midnight. He's not there simply to haunt his son. He's there to point out something drastically wrong in Denmark's royal household. Or consider Marley's ghost in A Christmas Carol, 1843, who is really a walking, clanking, moaning lesson in ethics for Scrooge. In fact, Dickens' ghosts are always up to something besides scaring the audience. Or take Dr. Jekyll's other half. The hideous Edward Hyde exists to demonstrate to readers that even a respectable man has a dark side. Like many Victorians, Robert Louis Stevenson believed in the dual nature of humans, and in more than one work he finds ways of showing that duality quite literally. In The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1886, he has Dr. J drink a potion and become his evil half, while in his now largely ignored short novel The Master of Ballantrae, 1889, he uses twins locked in fatal conflict to convey the same sense. You'll notice, by the way, that many of these examples come from Victorian writers. Stevenson, Dickens, Stoker, J.S. Le Fanu, Henry James. Why? Because there was so much the Victorians couldn't write about directly, chiefly sex and sexuality. They found ways of transforming those taboo subjects and issues into other forms. The Victorians were masters of sublimation. But even today, when there are no limits on subject matter or treatment, writers still use ghosts, vampires, werewolves, and all manner of scary things to symbolize various aspects of our more common reality. Try this for a dictum. Ghosts and vampires are never only about ghosts and vampires. Here's where it gets a little tricky, though. The ghosts and vampires don't always have to appear in visible forms. Sometimes the really scary bloodsuckers are entirely human. Let's look at another Victorian with experience in ghost and non-ghost genres, Henry James. James is known, of course, as a master, perhaps the master, of psychological realism. If you want massive novels with sentences as long and convoluted as the Missouri River, James is your man. At the same time, though, he has some shorter works that feature ghosts and demonic possession, and those are fun in their own way, as well as a good deal more accessible. His novella, The Turn of the Screw, 1898, is about a governess who tries, without success, to protect the two children in her care from a particularly nasty ghost who seeks to take possession of them. Either that, or it's about an insane governess who fantasizes that a ghost is taking over the children in her care and, in her delusion, literally smothers them with protectiveness. Or just possibly, it's about an insane governess who is dealing with a particularly nasty ghost who tries to take possession of her wards. Or possibly, well, let's just say that the plot calculus is tricky and that much depends on the perspective of the reader. So we have a story in which a ghost features prominently, even if we're never sure whether he's really there or not, in which the psychological state of the governess matters greatly, and in which the life of a child, a little boy, is consumed. Between the two of them, the governess and the specter destroy him. One might say that the story is about fatherly neglect. The stand-in for the father simply abandons the children to the governess's care and smothering maternal concern. Those two thematic elements are encoded into the plot of the novella. The particulars of the encoding are carried by the details of the ghost story. It just so happens that James has another famous story, Daisy Miller, 1878, in which there are no ghosts, no demonic possession, and nothing more mysterious than a midnight trip to the Colosseum in Rome. Daisy is a young American woman who does as she pleases, thus upsetting the rigid social customs of the European society she desperately wants to approve of her. Winterbourne, the man whose attention she desires, while both attracted to and repulsed by her, ultimately proves too fearful of the disapproval of his established expatriate American community to pursue her further. 
After numerous misadventures, Daisy dies, ostensibly by contracting malaria on her midnight jaunt. But you know what really kills her? Vampires. No, really, vampires. I know I told you there weren't any supernatural forces at work here, but you don't need fangs and a cape to be a vampire. The essentials of the vampire story as we discussed earlier, an older figure representing corrupt, outworn values, a young, preferably virginal female, a stripping away of her youth, energy, virtue, a continuance of the life force of the old male, the death or destruction of the young woman. Okay, let's see now. Winterborn and Daisy carry associations of winter, death, cold, and spring, life, flowers, renewal, that ultimately come into conflict, we'll talk about seasonal implications in a later chapter, with winter's frost destroying the delicate young flower. He is considerably older than she, closely associated with the stifling Euro-Anglo-American society. She is fresh and innocent. And here is James' brilliance so innocent as to appear to be a wanton. He and his aunt and her circle watch Daisy and disapprove, but because of a hunger to disapprove of someone, they never cut her loose entirely. They play with her yearning to become one of them, taxing her energies until she begins to wane. Winterborn mixes voyeurism, vicarious thrills, and stiff-necked disapproval, all of which culminate when he finds her with a male friend at the Colosseum and chooses to ignore her. Daisy says of his behavior, He cuts me dead. That should be clear enough for anyone. His and his cliques consuming of Daisy is complete. Having used up everything that is fresh and vital in her, he leaves her to waste away. Even then she asks after him. But having destroyed and consumed her, he moves on, not sufficiently touched, it seems to me, by the pathetic spectacle he has caused. So how does all this tie in with vampires? Is James a believer in ghosts and spooks? Does Daisy Miller mean he thinks we're all vampires? Probably not. I believe what happens here and in other stories and novels, The Sacred Font, 1901, comes to mind, is that he deems the figure of the consuming spirit or vampiric personality a useful narrative vehicle. We find this figure appearing in different guises, even under nearly opposite circumstances, from one story to another. On the one hand, in the turn of the screw, he uses the literal vampire or the possessing spook to examine a certain sort of psychosocial imbalance. These days, we'd give it a label, a dysfunctional something or other. But James probably only saw it as a problem in our approach to child-rearing or a psychic neediness in young women whom society disregards and discards. On the other hand, in Daisy Miller, he employs the figure of the vampire as an emblem of the way society, polite, ostensibly normal society, battens on and consumes its victims. Nor is James the only one. The 19th century was filled with writers showing the thin line between the ordinary and the monstrous. Edgar Allan Poe, J.S. Lafanu, whose ghost stories made him the Stephen King of his day. Thomas Hardy, whose poor heroine in Tess of the D'Urbervilles, 1891, provides table fare for the disparate hungers of the men in her life. Or virtually any novel of the naturalistic movement of the late 19th century where the law of the jungle and survival of the fittest reign. Of course, the 20th century also provided plenty of instances of social vampirism and cannibalism. Franz Kafka, a latter-day Poe, uses the dynamic in stories like The Metamorphosis, 1915, and A Hunger Artist, 1924, where, in a nifty reversal of the traditional vampire narrative, crowds of onlookers watch as the artist's fasting consumes him. Gabriel Garcia Marquez's heroine Innocent Erendira, in the tale bearing her name, 1972, is exploited and put out to prostitution by her heartless grandmother. D. H. Lawrence gave us any number of short stories where characters devour and destroy one another in life-and-death contests of will. Novellas like The Fox, 1923, and even novels like Women in Love, 1920, in which Gudrun Brangwen and Gerald Critch, 
Although ostensibly in love with one another, each realize that only one of them can survive and so engage in mutually destructive behavior. Iris Murdoch. Pick a novel. Any novel. Not for nothing did she call one of her books A Severed Head, 1961. Although The Unicorn, 1963, would work splendidly here with its wealth of phony gothic creepiness. There are works, of course, where the ghost or vampire is merely a gothic cheap thrill, without any particular thematic or symbolic significance. But such works tend to be short-term commodities, without much staying power in readers' minds or the public arena. We're haunted only while we're reading. In those works that continue to haunt us, however, the figure of the cannibal, the vampire, the succubus, the spook, announces itself again and again where someone grows in strength by weakening someone else. That's what this figure really comes down to, whether in Elizabethan, Victorian, or more modern incarnations, exploitation in its many forms, using other people to get what we want, denying someone else's right to live in the face of our overwhelming demands, placing our desires, particularly our uglier ones, above the needs of another. That's pretty much what the vampire does, after all. He wakes up in the morning, actually the evening, now that I think about it, and says something like, In order to remain undead, I must steal the life force of someone whose fate matters less to me than my own. I've always supposed that Wall Street traders utter essentially the same sentence. My guess is that as long as people act toward their fellows in exploitative and selfish ways, the vampire will be with us. Chapter 4 If it's square, it's a sonnet. Every few class periods, I'll begin discussion by asking the class what form the poem under consideration employs. That first time, the correct answer will be sonnet. The next time it happens, sonnet. Care to guess about the third? Very astute. Basically, I figure the sonnet is the only poetic form the great majority of readers ever needs to know. First, most readers will go through life without ever doing any intensive study of poetry, while many poetic forms require in-depth analysis to be recognized. Moreover, there just aren't that many villanelles in the world for us to see them very often. The sonnet, on the other hand, is blessedly common, has been written in every era since the English Renaissance, and remains very popular with poets and readers today. Best of all, it has a look. Other forms require mnemonic assistance. It doesn't take any great sagacity to know that Ezra Pound's Sestina, Alta Forte, 1909, is actually a Sestina, but I for one am very grateful that he labels it as to form. We would notice that something funny is going on, that in fact he uses the same six words to end the lines in every stanza, but who has a name for that? We can learn to put the name Villanelle to Theodore Retke's The Waking, 1953. But most readers don't carry that information around with them, or need to, really. Is the quality of your life harmed by not recognizing on site something like the Rondo? That's what I thought. And so, unless your ambitions have been spurred by this discussion, I'll stick to the sonnet, for one single reason. No other poem is so versatile, so ubiquitous, so various, so agreeably short as the sonnet. After I tell the students that first time that it's a sonnet, half of them groan in belated recognition, often they know but think I have a hidden agenda or a trick up my sleeve, and the others ask me how I knew that so fast. I tell them two things. First, that I read the poem before class, useful for someone in my position, or theirs, come to think of it, and second, that I counted the lines when I noticed the geometry of the poem. Which is, they ask, well, I respond, trying to milk the moment for all its suspense. It's square. The miracle of the sonnet, you see, is that it is 14 lines long and written almost always in iambic pentameter. I don't want to bog down in the whole matter of meter right now, but suffice it to say that most lines are going to have 10 syllables and the others will be very close to 10. And 10 syllables of English are about as long as 14 lines are high. Square. Okay, great. So I can identify one type of poem, you say. Who cares? I agree to a point. 
I think people who read poems for enjoyment should always read the poem first without a formal or stylistic care in the world. They should not begin by counting lines or looking at lined endings to find the rhyme scheme, if any, just as I think people should read novels without peeking at the ending. Just enjoy the experience. After you've had your first pleasure, though, one of the additional pleasures is seeing how the poet worked that magic on you. There are many ways a poem can charm the reader. Choice of images, music of the language, idea content, cleverness of wordplay. And at least some part of the answer, if that magic came in a sonnet, is form. You might suppose that a poem of a mere 14 lines is only capable of achieving one effect, and you'd be right. It can't have epic scope, it can't undertake subplots, it can't carry much narrative water. But you'd also be wrong. It can do two things. A sonnet, in fact, we might think of as having two units of meaning, closely related to be sure, but with a shift of some sort taking place between them. Those two content units correspond closely to the two parts into which the form typically breaks. The sonnet has been a big part of English poetry since the 1500s, and there are a few major types of sonnet and myriad variations. But most of them have two parts, one of eight lines and one of six lines. A Petrarchan sonnet uses a rhyme scheme that ties the first eight lines, the octave, together, followed by a rhyme scheme that unifies the last six, the sestet. A Shakespearean sonnet, on the other hand, tends to divide up by four, the first four lines, or quatrain, the next four, the third four, and the last four, which turns out to be only two, a couplet. But even here, the first two groups of four have some unity of meaning, as do the third four and the last two. Shakespeare himself often works a statement of its own into that last couplet, but it also usually ties in pretty closely with the third quatrain. All these technical terms, and it's not even physics. Still, who can say that a poem isn't engineered? Sometimes, especially in the modern and postmodern period, those units slip and slide a little, and the octave doesn't quite contain its meaning, which may, for instance, carry over onto the ninth line, but still, the basic pattern is 8-6. To see how all this works, let's look at an example. Christina Rossetti was a significant minor British poet of the late 19th century, although not so well known as her older brother, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, a poet, painter, and leader in the artistic pre-Raphaelite movement. This is her poem, An Echo from Willow Wood, circa 1870. I suggest you read it out loud to get the full effect. Two gazed into a pool, he gazed and she, not hand in hand, yet heart in heart, I think, pale and reluctant on the water's brink, as on the brink of parting, which must be, each eyed the other's aspect, she and he. Each felt one hungering heart leap up and sink. Each tasted bitterness, which both must drink. There, on the brink of life's dividing sea. Lilies upon the surface, deep below, to wistful faces craving each for each, resolute and reluctant without speech. A sudden ripple made the faces flow, one moment joined to vanish out of reach. So those hearts joined and ah, were parted so. It's a terrific little poem in its own right, and a good poem for our purposes. For one thing, it has neither a thee nor a thou in sight, not an air nor an oar, so we eliminate some of that ball of confusion that older poetry slings at hapless modern readers. Moreover, I like Christina Rossetti, and I think more people should be able to fall in love with her. At first glance, the poem doesn't really look square. True, but it's close, and that's how the eye will initially perceive it. So the first question is, how many sentences? Note that I'm not asking for lines, of which there are of course fourteen, but for sentences. The answer is two. What we're interested in here is the most basic unit of meaning in a poem. Lines and stanzas are necessities in poetry, but if the poem is any good, its basic unit of meaning is the sentence just as in all other writing. That's why if you stop at the end of every line, a poem makes no sense. It's arranged in lines, but written in sentences. Second question. Without counting, can you guess where the first period falls? 
Right. End of line 8. The octave is a single unit of meaning. What Rossetti does here is construct her sentences, which have to carry her meaning, so that they work within the form she has chosen. Her rhyme scheme proves to be a little idiosyncratic, since she elects to repeat the same rhymes in both quatrains of the octave, A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A. Then she picks an equally uncommon rhyme scheme for the sestet, C-D-D-C-D-C. Still, in each case, the particular pattern reinforces the basic concept. These eight lines carry one idea, those six another related idea. In the octave, she creates a static picture of two lovers on the verge of an event. Everything in it points to the imminence of their parting, three times using the word brink, which suggests how close to the edge of something these two lovers are. And yet with all their trepidation, full of hungering and bitterness, their surface, like that of the water, is placid. Inside, their hearts may leap up and sink, yet they show nothing, since they look not at each other, but at each other's aspect, at the reflection of the beloved in the water rather than the beloved's person. This not being able to look directly at one's lover suggests the panic of their situation. The watery images may further portend disaster in recalling the myth of Narcissus, who, falling in love with his reflection in the water, attempted to join it, and so drowned. Still, no outward sign gives anything of their inner feeling away. In the sestet, though, a puff of breeze creates a ripple and dissolves that carefully controlled image of the placid surface lilies masking the emotional turbulence underneath. The water, the dividing sea, which had united them in image, now affects their separation. What is possible in the octave becomes actual in the sestet. Without making any extravagant claims, no, this is not the greatest sonnet ever written, nor the most important statement of anything, we can say that an echo from Willow Wood is an excellent specimen of its chosen form. Rossetti manages her content so that it tells a story of complex human longing and regret within the confines of a very demanding form. The beauty of this poem lies in part in the tension between the small package and the large emotional and narrative scene it contains. We feel that the story is in danger of breaking out of the boundaries of its vessel, but of course it never does. The vessel, the sonnet form, actually becomes part of the meaning of the poem. And this is why form matters, and why professors pay attention to form. It just might mean something. Will every sonnet consist of only two sentences? No, that would be boring. Will they all employ this rhyme scheme? No. And they may not even have rhyme schemes. There is something called a blank sonnet. Blank, meaning it employs unrhymed lines. But when a poet chooses to write a sonnet, rather than, say, John Milton's epic Paradise Lost, it's not because he's lazy. One of the old French philosophers and wits, Blaise Pascal, apologized for writing a long letter saying, I had not time to write a short one. Sonnets are like that. Short poems that take far more time, because everything has to be perfect, than long ones. We owe it to poets, I think, to notice that they've gone to this trouble, as well as to ourselves, to understand the nature of the thing we're reading. When you start to read a poem, then, look at the shape. 